This week, I'm in the room with Pastor Colin Smith discussing ministry longevity and his new book, Momentum. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 60. I'm your host, Ryan Hughley. Uh, this is episode 60, Scotty. The I'm here six... with Scott Holdhouse. You will wait until I give you an opportunity to speak. Well, I'm wait. thinking of ways to interrupt because I find <laughs> that that is something I'm very good at on this show. You are. You have the gift of interruption. I do. You do a great job with that. Thank you. All right. So uh, episode 60, that's pretty crazy, right? It is, yeah. I remember when we were just thinking about this idea and now that there's 60 of them. Yeah. And, and like, cool. how are we ever going to get people to do this? I'm still yeah. surprised every time that, I do one. That was the big hurdle. We're yeah. like, this sounds good. Yeah. But other than each other, who's yeah. going to be on it? <laughs> so it's gone well. Uh, this is a great number 60 episode with Colin Smith. Uh, he is the pastor of the Orchard Evangelical Free Church in Arlington Heights, Illinois, where we planted redemption as Represent. well. Represent. Sweet guy. Best thing about him by far. That's an overstatement. That's probably not yeah, accurate. That's not a great way to state it. A but wonderful thing about a him. A wonderful thing about him, because he was filled with wisdom. It's a great episode. Really enjoyed the time with him, but he's Scottish. He is. So he yeah. has a tremendous accent. Yeah. Yeah. And he wields it well, too. He does. Yeah. yeah. He's not showy about it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. He's yeah. He's uh, understated, but, but All right, really so, powerful. So if you, had to, if you could have any accent... Yeah. Other than the delightful Midwestern Chicago accent. That, yeah, that everyone's that, craving. That everybody wants. Yeah. What would you pick? Hey, honey, get me some sausage from the jewels, please. <laughs> so gross. <laughs> it is. Uh, I've actually thought more than you would think about this yeah. question. I'm actually not surprised at all that you've thought about this. Yeah. And I think it would come down to two okay similar uh-huh. but very distinct okay uh either british yeah. or australian really yeah there's something about the australian one that's just a little like i don't know it's just a little edge to it yeah you know there and they're different awesome about it. They're, they're different yeah big time. isn't that isn't that what the you know the hemsworth or helmsworth whatever the like yeah. thor and his, thor. there's yeah. like seven and super thor, attractive and sons brother. in that family yeah, yeah. <laughs> although did you see when they weren't when uh i can't remember which one of them was hosting snl but there are actually three Helmsworth brothers. Oh man! And then there's like there's there's the one that was on Hunger Games. Yeah, like super handsome, fit dude. And then oh, there's, I didn't know he was one. Yeah, he's one. Oh, and then okay. Thor, who's Thor. Thor. <laughs> yeah. And then there's one dude in the middle that might be adopted. <laughs> he does not look. It's like like the other two. This he's like a full foot shorter. There's. There's something about the three brother thing. Cause yeah. think about the Mannings, Peyton Manning, Eli oh, yeah. Manning, and And then the one that we don't even know his name. Do they let him out of the house? <laughs> and then too What's it like to be that guy? Yeah. And then too, this uh my wife and I watched some HGTV, just yeah. a little confession yeah, before fine. I go into yeah. this. But the property brothers. Yeah. These two brothers, like one's the real estate guy, one's yeah. the, and they're both on TV and stuff, and yeah. they have a third brother. Really? Yeah. How do you know that? Because they just did a show where like he was on it. Really? He was on the camera. Yeah, I feel Does like, he for look like, like 13 them? seconds. Yeah, not really. Hmm. Yeah. We've, so. we've really gone down a trail here. I don't we, know how we got to. We have. We started talking attractive. about Thor and his yeah. brothers. And um, anyway, back to the So I brought them up because I think that the Helmsworth brothers are Australian. They're, yeah, they're Aren't Aussies. They? Yeah, maybe we could be yeah. mates. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> well done with the mates. Already starting to acclimate. All right. What so about now, you? Uh, I don't know. I mean, the Scottish one's pretty 
it's pretty fabulous. Yeah. I think I, I'm a pretty equal opportunity. How much, uh, just percentage-wise, yeah. how much of that is based on your love of Braveheart? 100%. 100%. There's yeah. no need to even ask the question. I actually did uh, Mel Gibson's speech from Braveheart in a speech class in high school. There are an endless number of things that are fascinating about you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and as I, I find, too, that I had awesome teachers. Like, my teacher in speech class was mm-hmm. like, yeah, sure. Did you do it. it with the accent? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. I fight and you may die. <laughs> Run and you'll live <laughs> for a while. Yeah. That's pretty thing. good. Yeah. It's a little, it has a, like a little bit of like Hispanic tone to it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I find that every <laughs> accent that I try to do ends up becoming like an, like an Indian accent. Yeah. That's Becky. That's what, that's Becky, my yeah. wife, for those who don't know. I don't know. know how that happens to me, but I, yeah. I would say like, I'm pretty equal, like Scottish, Irish, mm-hmm. British. The British can get a little pretentious. I'm just going to say it. No offense to it, our British listeners. Yeah. I learned there's a of difference. Of which there's maybe one. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Um, so you know how like the, for the U.S., the North mm-hmm. has a certain accent. South has yeah. a certain accent. Yeah. Well, the same is true in in England. Yeah, the North there has a certain. In the South, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I didn't realize that. I worked with a guy who was uh, born there, and he was describing them. And, and now, every time I hear somebody who's British, I'm like, North or South? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty. So, cool. like, what were uh, like? Uh, uh, I'm just gonna keep saying uh sure. over and over and over again. Just fill it up. So what are, so like, give me an example of like some British, like I, I'm thinking of musicians that would well, be from like North or South. Well, actually, How do you so, feel the difference? so the North is more, is like similar to Scottish. Okay. The Scottish accent. Yeah. And just, and then the South is a little bit more like, I don't, I mean, I'm for sure not the person to be commenting on this. No, but, definitely. You're a dialect expert. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. This is but great. it's a little more uh, like, I don't know. A little more refined. Is it harder to... Like, un- is it, which one's harder to... Some of them north. are so hard to understand. North. North is yeah. harder. Also, um, for any British people listening to this who may have just heard what I said and believe it's absolutely incorrect, please let me know. Yeah, please. Twitter, email. Yeah. Please set us straight. And also, to clarify, I was not saying that British people were pretentious. But just I feel like like the French accent, you out know, the like... the overflow of the heart. Out of the over... <laughs> The mouse speaks. That's true. <laughs> Just uh, so if I had to do have any accent, not if I had to, if I could, yeah. I would replace the ignorant one yeah. I think I have now. What is what, what, much, what kind of situation would we be in where they're like, you have to pick an accent? I don't know, man. I don't know, yeah, man. The world's, the world's deteriorating. Crazy. Who the knows what's going to happen? The world's getting crazy. That's yeah. next. That's what's next. Making us take accents. I definitely enjoyed Colin Smith in all the time that we lived in Chicago. I never had the opportunity to meet him, unfortunately. So I'm glad that um, now I finally got to because he was great. Uh, there's something really, I really appreciate older pastors who um, have a wealth of experience to draw from and, and, and have and have processed their experience in a way that has lent itself to wisdom. Yeah. You know, I think there's a misnomer that, that, age alone translates to wisdom. Yeah. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that all that age guarantees is you've, you've experienced more yeah. in life. But I know a lot of people who haven't necessarily processed their experience as well in a way that it's transitioned to or translated to wisdom. Mm-hmm. And Colin Smith is definitely not yeah. that guy. Uh, he had a really, really great answers about ministry longevity, be about enduring difficulty in ministry. And then his new book, Momentum, is all about the Beatitudes. And it's very, very insightful book published by Moody. Um, Enjoyed it a lot. I think it'll be helpful. So come on in the room for my conversation with Colin Smith. 
Colin, thanks so much for coming on in the room. I really appreciate it. I very much appreciated uh, your new book, Momentum, uh, and excited to talk about that. But uh, I want to start with your background for anyone that may not be. I'm, I'm assuming that many are familiar with you, but for those that are not, uh, you uh, pastored the orchard uh, in Arlington Heights, which is obviously an area that I'm familiar with as I just moved from that area. Um, but based on your accent, I don't believe that you're probably from Arlington Heights. So <laughs> tell me, tell everybody a little bit about where you're from and uh, just catch us up on kind of what your ministry journey has been thus far. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, so uh, I was uh, born and raised in Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, trained for uh, the ministry uh, in London at what's now known as the London School of Theology, met okay. my wife Karen there, and uh, became a pastor in North London, a town called Enfield, and uh, served there for 16 years, Okay. and uh, have been here for just over 20 now uh, wow. at the Orchard. That's amazing. So the great thing about being Scottish and a preacher is that even if you're preaching heresy, it sounds so good that people don't even catch up on it. Heresy never sounds good. <laughs> no, really it does doesn't. not. No. Not to a believer's ear anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do. I want to talk to you a little bit about ministry longevity because so you said 17 years at the first church and now 20 at the orchard. Um, yeah. Just tell me a little bit about it. I think that the, the the burnout rate in ministry is pretty high. Sadly, we both know many pastors that either, whether it be moral failure or just sheer exhaustion, have not made it for the long haul in ministry. And so, what have what have been some things that you think when you reflect on the last now almost forty years um, in vocational ministry that have been keys to you making it this far? Yeah. Well, um, the first thing that comes to my mind, uh, Ryan, is uh, the ability of a pastor to be able to uh, nourish his own spiritual life. That's I've got to be able to do that. Um, if if I uh, don't live freshly in the scriptures and walk in a way that is uh, fresh with the Lord uh, mm -hmm. on a daily, regular basis, then uh, at the end of the day, I, I'm giving out and I'm going to end up drying up. So uh, the ability to to, to nourish uh, one's own spiritual life, I think, is huge. We spend a lot of time with um, the younger pastors here and in the training program that we have here for folks who are going into ministry talking mm -hmm. about that. And I find that that's the thing that they find to be more useful than anything else because it's often just assumed yeah. um, and actually it is the most critical thing. I think another piece that's in there is nourishing relationships with um, those who are called to serve alongside you. There are some relationships that just have to work. I find it important at some points uh, just to say this relationship must work work. Hmm. I have to make this work. I have to pour uh, everything that I can into making this work. Now, I've got to say, I've been greatly blessed with really good relationships with very wonderful people mm -hmm. in uh, the two churches that I've been privileged to serve. Um, but there are always times where that is easier and times where it is harder. And so that commitment, I think, is really, really important. Um, uh, you know, having a family that's really supportive has been a great blessing to me. And, uh, well, I could count on for a long time some of the blessings that have been given. Yeah. But that, I think, are one or two top answers to your question. Yeah, no, that's really, really helpful. What about what about in your marriage? Um, what has mm. it looked like for you to keep your marriage healthy? What have been some really important things for you to be able to... What's your wife's name? My wife's name is Carden, yeah. Uh, and and you know, I was talking about this just... 
Sorry? Now, what have been some keys to that, keeping that? Because I know that that's a relationship that unfortunately ministry can put a lot of stress on. Any job can put a lot of stress on. But how have you worked to keep that healthy all these years? Yeah, that, uh, maintaining a day off is one thing that's just very, very practical in that regard, uh, Ryan. I was actually speaking about this just at the Moody Pastors Conference yesterday. And I, I was talking with some of the guys in a workshop there about First uh, Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, which can be translated, live with your wife according to knowledge. Mm, and I good. found that to be a very, very important phrase that, that my understanding um, of what brings her blessing and pleasure and uh, what brings her frustration and mm-hmm. so forth are really, really, really important and to be contemporary in that, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, 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 she is not the woman that she was uh, uh, 10 uh, uh, or 20 uh, or 30 years ago. I'm not the guy that I was 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. So we've got to keep current because mm-hmm. life is changing uh, all of the time. Uh, but that phrase has been very helpful to me. And uh, we talk sometimes about, you know, my distinct calling as her husband is to be the world expert on Karen Smith. That's good. And, uh, you know, I, I, I take it as a challenge. Let it never be said that she is a friend or any a counselor or anyone else in her life that could understand her better than, yeah. than I do. That's my calling. God placed me next to her. So I want to really work at that. And, uh, you know, working at that is a great, great joy and a blessing that. to me. Oh, I love that. Well, one of the things I appreciate about you is, I mean, everybody's calling is different, but you've been in two churches now and both of them have been for a long time. Um, and you don't survive ministry for the long haul nor stay in one place for a long time without having to endure some some level of opposition. Um, mm. Probably specific criticism would be one one big thing I know a lot of pastors face, but could you tell me a story maybe about a time that you encountered or walked through a season of opposition or criticism that was difficult and trying for you? And, and, and how exactly did you get through that? Yeah. Well, I, I think the uh, the low point uh, of uh, uh, our ministry here was uh, was ten years ago. Certainly, I, looking back on the first ten years, um, uh, my experience was that each year became harder than the year uh, that was before. That's really encouraging. Uh, well, uh, here's uh, <laughs> it's not, but uh, here's the encouraging bit. The yeah. second ten years, the second decade each year has honestly been better than the year that went before. So sometimes you have to push through some things, and sometimes when a vision becomes clearer and the church's identity and ministry becomes clearer, that actually brings tensions to a head. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that has to happen. I wish it wasn't so, but my own experience has been that that was the case. When we got in to the most intense period of difficulty. I, I had one or two rules that I just tried to keep for myself, and I'm sure I didn't keep them all the time, but I did work hard at trying to keep these. Um, one of them was don't try to defend yourself. Um, mm-hmm. when, when you're under barrage, you know, other people may be able to do that, mm-hmm. um, um, uh, but don't try and defend yourself. Um, a second uh, was to speak well of others in every way that you possibly can. I really tried to work hard about that. And, and, and the third one was just from Hebrews 12, 
um, see to it that no root of bitterness mm, springs so up in you. And uh, uh, that verse was really, really important to me uh, over uh, that period of time that really lasted for, um, I suppose, it was a year to 18 months before we turned the corner of these particular difficulties. Mm, that's very, very helpful. A lot of wisdom. Um, before we transi- transition to the book, I do have one more ministry question for you. Anytime I get an opportunity to talk to somebody that has been in it much longer than me, I, I just I have so much to learn. So, um, so early in ministry, there's a lot of emphasis on it, on intentional growth, um, development, coaching. You go to seminary, um, but as a you know, you, now you've been in ministry almost forty years. What is it? How do you continue to pursue? So you've got this new book on the Beatitudes as a means of spiritual growth, but what does it look like for you at this stage in your ministry to, to still be seeking to grow as a leader, as a preacher, as a pastor, as a husband? Um, how, do you, how do you build those rhythms into your life now? Well, I, I mean, I think the first thing to say is um, uh, I don't feel in my own soul that I have reached the point of doing anything that I'm called to do in the way that I would want really to do it. Mm. You know, I I, um, I I was very struck um, when I heard that Lloyd-Jones, who's one of my preaching heroes, yeah. uh, said that he wouldn't cross the road to hear himself preach. Yeah, <laughs> Lloyd-Jones felt that. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know what? I, I, I um, feel that I'm pursuing um, wanting to preach um, with uh, a faithfulness, a penetration, a power that comes from above that is greater than anything that I've known. I mean, it's it. my father-in-law was a musician, uh-huh. and uh, he, he played um, uh, with one of the London uh, orchestras, wow. and he used to talk in this kind of way, that he was searching after playing the violin on a particular piece hmm. in the way that he always wanted to. He never quite got there. Yeah. And I feel that with regards to pastoral care. I think, Lord, I, I, I want to have more wisdom. I feel that in regards to preaching. I want to know more of your anointing upon my ministry. I mean, I... Uh, my father-in-law used to say, you know, the day that you feel you've got there is the day you shouldn't be doing this job anymore. That's and uh, so I don't have any difficulties about keeping on that yeah. edge. <laughs> it just seems to me that the calling that we have, um, that the gospel will come to us through with power and with the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Thessalonians, that that's something that we're always reaching after mm-hmm. and always wanting to see more of uh, than we've seen, um, yeah. you know, and Whatever happens in terms of our ministry and the number of people reached, uh, the world that needs to be reached, uh, beginning with the world that's just in our own community, is vast. And the number of people that have never even heard of our churches, mm-hmm. um, you know, God help us. Um, yeah. uh, so um, uh, the sense of need and the sense of, uh, you know, in ministry, we there's always enough to keep us praising God and to keep us encouraged, but there's always enough not yet accomplished to keep us on our knees. Oh, that's good. Hey, sorry for interrupting the conversation, but I wanted to tell you about uh, a project that I've worked hard on over the last year and I'm very excited about. It's my new book, Eight Hours or Less, Writing Faithful Sermons Faster. Uh, Time in our culture is one of our greatest commodities. 
And one of the biggest time investments for pastors is certainly sermon preparation. Uh, But what if there were a way for you to write better sermons in less time? And that's really my hope and my prayer for my new book, Eight Hours or Less. Uh, It's a step-by-step guide for improving your process and being the best steward of time uh, that God's given you. And so if you have not yet had an opportunity and you've been blessed by the podcast, uh, it would be a huge blessing to me if you would uh, run over to Amazon.com or uh, my website, RyanHughley.com, and pick up your copy of Eight Hours or Less. That's good. Well, I, it's clear in in reading your latest work that you know one of the things that you're really committed to is to continue to dig in the scriptures because you that's so evident in this new work on the Beatitudes. And uh, one of the primary insights that you provide in the book is how to is how the order of the Beatitudes. You even write this, I believe, in the introduction that the order of the Beatitudes show how to make progress in the Christian faith. That they are sequential yep. in the way that Jesus laid them out. And I think that it was, even in one of the endorsements, I think Colin Hansen's, he even commented on how that was new for him, that he hadn't really caught that before. And so I was wondering if you could just explain that a little bit. Yeah, well, the first thing to say is that um, it's new to many people, um, uh, but it's not new uh, in terms of the Christian church. I found this simply by going uh, to the past, and it's often the case that older writers have insights that were common in earlier generations but are Mm -hmm. lost sight of now. So I found this in the Puritans, I found it in Lloyd-Jones, that the Beatitudes are not simply a list of blessings kind of thrown down in a heap, but that there really is order and progress there so that the Lord is not only describing the blessed life, he's actually giving us the way in which it is to be pursued. And the aha moment for me was when I began preaching this in the church here at the Orchard, mm-hmm. um, people, uh, the overwhelming response was people said, never heard this before, never yeah. uh, heard or thought that there was order and progress in the Beatitudes, but it makes sense and it's really helpful. Yeah. And so I've deployed a very simple image that's at the heart of the books, which is a, uh, the book, which is a series of seven rings, if you imagine them being um, suspended from a ceiling, and by swinging on the first ring, it's your momentum that takes you within reach of the second, and swinging on the second ring gets you within reach of the third, and so forth and so on. And I think that's what's happening in the Beatitudes, that the Lord is, you know, we always start with, how do I get to purity of heart? How do I get to peace? I want to have that purity. I want to have that mercy and that forgiveness. But how do I get to these wonderful blessings that Jesus speaks of? And I think that the answer is you begin at the beginning. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, this is really good news. The place to begin in spiritual progress is to recognize I don't have what I'm seeking. Actually, it goes right back to the question we were just talking about a moment ago, Ryan, you know, in terms of our own ministries. We're pursuing that which we do not yet have. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the momentum that moves us forward. I love that. I, I don't know. Are you familiar with Spartan races? You know what those are? Tell me me about it. All right. So Spartan races are their adventure races and uh, you run at, so there's like five mile, a 10 mile and about a 15 mile. So you usually, you run and then there's obstacles built in. And I loved the momentum and the, the image on the front 
and that this image that drives the whole thing, because one of the obstacles is that very thing where it's like these suspended rings and I usually fall off of them. So I found the image just a little bit discouraging because uh, that's my, <laughs> but I'm just, if you ever come to North Carolina and you run around a Spartan race, I'll take you out for it. It'll be a great okay. time. We'll have so much that fun. That sounds like a lot of fun. And, and by the way, the thing about falling off um, which is exactly what we all do. We, yeah. we we fall off in all kinds of ways. I fall off on purity of heart. I That's fall right. off on peace. I fall off on uh, the issue of forgiveness when I find it hard to do. So every time we fall off, the question is, where do you get back on? Mm -hmm. You get back on on the first ring, That's which good. is, Lord, I blew it. I, yeah. I, I messed up. I am... What I always have been, one who needs your mercy and your grace. And that's what actually moves us forward. And, and so good. the Christian life is like this. Yeah. Um, uh, we're not going to get to a stage where it's without frequent failure. Yeah. But um, the Beatitudes are telling us how to deal with that and how to move forward from that. And uh, uh, that pattern has really been helpful and yeah. encouraging to me. Oh, it totally is. And let's, let's, uh, we won't go through all of them, but I want to talk about sure. a few specifics. So the first one is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. So I was wondering if you could um, unpack that a little bit and just explain a little bit about how and why being poor in spirit is the starting point. Well, the good news is that uh, realizing that we don't have what it takes when it comes to God, um, uh, standing before God is really the place that we begin with all spiritual progress. And um, uh, that is the case throughout our Christian lives, that we, we come uh, empty-handed in order to receive what comes from the Father. The great mistake that so many people make, of course, is the idea that we have to come to God and offer him something in order to bribe him for his favor. Yeah. And the whole uh, message of grace and the whole life of grace is based on the fact that we're the ones who come empty-handed, right. and he's the one who puts um, what we don't have into our hands in order that we may move forward. So we never move beyond that. We don't come to the cross to get through it. We come to the cross to live there. That's good. And um, uh, so uh, Spurgeon uses the picture of a ladder, and he says a ladder is no use unless its first rung is very close to the ground. That's and uh, the first rung of this ladder, to use that different analogy, is very close to the ground. Anyone can get on. It. Lord, I need your mercy. I don't come because of what I am or what I've proved, but because of what I need. I love that. Well, what about blessed are those who mourn for they shall yeah. be comforted. You're quick to clarify that this is a spiritual mourning, not just any yeah. kind of mourning. Yeah. So, so first maybe just provide a simple kind of working definition or description of, of what spiritual mourning is. And then uh, I've got a follow-up question about how you, you reference how it's such an important factor in our defeat of habitual sin. And so I'd love to hear yeah. your thoughts on that. But first, just how would you define or describe spiritual mourning? Well, the, the, the big thing is that it's a mourning over particular sins. You, you can't do spiritual mourning over sin in general. Right. I mean, I think, I think the enemy of our souls tries to get us depressed right. about sin in general. How do you address sin in general? Yeah. You can only address sin in particular. And uh, spiritual mourning, therefore, identifies particular sins that I need to be fighting against more strongly in my life. I actually encourage folks to do what I uh, do quite frequently. Um, I asked my wife, what is a, a sin 
that I should be fighting against more strongly? And it's a great question to ask in relationships of oh, real yeah. trust and closeness and to be able to identify something and, and to say, you know, I, I really need to spot that when it occurs in my life yeah. and I need to resist it more fully. And spiritual mourning at its heart really is counting the cost that that particular sin is to me, to other people around me, and the cost of it to Christ, of course, who died for particular sins, not for sin in general, but for mm -hmm. sins in particular, mm -hmm. sins with names and dates and places and yeah. faces, as it yeah. were, on them. So it's something we do at the cross. It's something that's always infused with hope. Because repentance in its nature is not feeling sorry for myself or miserable over my failure as if that were an end point. Real repentance is always infused with hope because it involves coming to the place of hope, which is the cross. But I do think that the art of spiritual mourning is something that we need to learn in order that we don't simply spend our lives going round in circles, failing at the same point again and again and again and again. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's going to break us out of that? It's to face um, the cost of this more seriously, to take it on board more profoundly, and to seek the grace of God, therefore, to make progress. Oh, man, that's good. So, what, what would you say to someone who is listening and they have a habitual sin in their life? Maybe it's a lust uh, of some kind, maybe struggling sure. with pornography. I know, um, especially amongst men, men and women, but especially men, that would be a really common one. So, what would be the way practically that you would run after being a person who practices spiritual mourning for the purpose of killing that habitual sin in their life. Well, you've said the first thing, which is to identify something specific, which mm -hmm. is really helpful. Mm -hmm. Then to begin to, to count the cost of that. What is, what is the cost of that brother to you, is what I would say if I was sitting face to face with a brother. What is the cost of that to your wife and to your relationship with your wife? And think about this in relationship to the cost uh, that it is to Christ. Take some time to meditate on this. Take some time to take in where you could be and where your relationship could be and where your usefulness could be. If you were granted real sustained victory over this, take this in what it's costing and then take in the hope that there really is. Um, in Jesus Christ for you in regard to this. Because I think sometimes, and you've taken a very good example, mm -hmm. um, uh, he, here's an issue on which we tend to give up That's as right. if the grace of God were not sufficient for us. Yeah. And then I would also say this, you know, um, if you have failed many times, try to see progress. Try to see progress that longer stretches are... Um, happening between the times when you fail and that when you fail you are not falling so deeply as you did before and when you do fall that you are coming back more quickly to Christ than you did before. I mean these are measurable kinds of things so look for progress, mm -hmm. ask for Christ to help you with progress and spiritual mourning really is um, an art, I think, a discipline that is cultivated. And as it's strengthened, it does strengthen you in the battle. So it sounds like in what you're saying that habitual sin tends to really be the result of a callousness toward that sin, that there's, that the reality is when we look at, I mean, I, I, I'm, 
talk to obviously as a pastor to a lot of people that are struggling in areas like this. And there is just this, this sort of general, like, I feel guilty. I feel bad. I know I shouldn't do this. But as what you're saying is if, if in reality we have a genuine spiritual mourning over the reality of that sin, that, that, that if we had that, we would not persist in that sin. Do you agree with that? Yes, I think that this is key to making progress is mm-hmm. the way that I would say that. In other words, that there's something better to do than just to say, oh, I messed up yeah, again. Right. Oh, what a wretched person I am and so forth and then move on. That's I mean, let, let's let, let's take the moment of failure and seek some redemptive momentum to come out of the very fact of the failure. Yeah. And so the first ring that I'm getting on here uh, when I have failed is, Lord, I come empty handed. I need your grace. And I don't want simply to be stuck in this cycle. I do want to look carefully at what it's costing and what it means. And I do want, therefore, to gain some momentum. And I think, therefore, that second ring takes uh, us in its momentum to the third, which is this whole matter of blessed are the meek, which is often not understood that meekness is really the submission of um, uh, the whole self to Christ Mm -hmm. and is therefore strength being brought under control. And I think that what comes out of this repentance is a renewed submission to the Lordship of Christ. Mm -hmm. And then out of that, a new hunger and thirst for righteousness and a new forgiveness of others, even as I'm forgiven. And so there's movement forward here that then takes us to purity and peace that are the other side. That's good. Well, and again, we won't talk about them all, but I did want to talk in a little bit more detail about this third one of blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Cause it does seem to be one of the more confusing Um, meekness is not weakness is what, you know, we always want to clarify that. But I think the reason that it's so almost repulsive to people in our culture is that it does feel like weakness. Um, So how do you, so you did a great job of explaining that it's really about submission. um, And so it's strength controlled, but maybe just talk a little bit about, I know in the book you talk about uh, these sort of these three different areas where we need to be submitted to God's word, to his will and to his people. Is that right? Do I recall that correctly? Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. talk a little bit about the importance of being submitted in those three areas. Yeah, well, you've identified, I think, the three areas um, in which uh, submission is uh, crucial. First, mm-hmm. to God's uh, word, then to God's will, which, of course, we see in Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that is meekness. Jesus draped over a stone yeah. and submitting to the will of the Father where it is really, really painful. And then, of course, we are called within the body of Christ to submit to one another. Mm-hmm. And that's a very distinctive part uh, of our our calling. But the big piece that I want people to get hold of in regards to um, submission and what was really, really helpful uh, to me here uh, was to see that it really is all about strength being brought under control. Um, uh, And uh, I I use the image of the the wild horse. Wild horses don't win races. That's right. Um, uh, They have all kinds of strength, but their strength isn't coordinated. Um, Their strength isn't brought under control. It's only when that strength is brought into submission um, that the horse is in a position for its power to be aligned and it for act, actually to go someplace. Now, seeing that that, that that meekness is really about all of the fractious impulses that are going on inside a human being's soul being brought into alignment 
by submission to the Lordship of Christ. That's immensely attractive mm -hmm. and wholly different from what you rightly say, Ryan, is uh, in the turnoff mm -hmm. of, um, mm -hmm. of, 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 of weakness. Um, that's not something that we're wanting to actively pursue. Yeah. Um, but bringing strength under control is. Lord, I, I would want that everything is brought under your Lordship in such a way that all can be deployed in a way that really is uh, purposeful. So uh, I, I, I try and get communicate that key piece mm -hmm. to show how it happens and then give some examples from Scripture of what this actually looks like in practice. Yeah, I could see readers, you know, being like 100% on board with submitting to God's Word and submitting to God's will and then having there be some questions that arise for people when it comes to submitting to God's people and submitting to one another. Yeah. Because I know that, you know, submission doesn't mean being a doormat by any yep. means. And so would there be would there be situations in which submission to whether it be submission to in, in a relationship or it be submission to leadership in the church what would be some situations where where just doing what you're told may not necessarily be the right thing does that make sense i don't know if that's yeah, the clearest no, it question it absolutely makes sense and you're making a, a right distinction that is in the book um, uh, between the unlimited um, uh, and unconstrained uh, submission that we're called to give to scripture as having supreme authority over us and uh, the will of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, uh, um, uh, uh, there's a distinction between that which is unconstrained, unlimited, and our submission to one another, where there, there has to be an element, as you're rightly pointing out, of uh, we must obey God uh, rather than men. But I think the big point is this, and, and what I really wanted to get at was that we're living in a culture where of hyper-independence, where you have all kinds of Christians wandering around churches, you know, sampling what's good in one and then something else in another. Other, and having no real commitment to any actual part of the body of Christ. Mm. And I want to say to folks like that, look, brother, sister, how in the world are you going to fulfill the calling of God to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ if you're not a member of some local church someplace? Mm -hmm. Surely this is a significant part of God's calling on your life. And I think that that's an important thing for us to say and a valid thing for us to say as pastors, um, that we are called not only to submit ourselves to uh, to the Word of God, but we are called actually to engage in the body of Christ. And uh, I don't know how you do that unless you're part of a, a living congregation. Yeah, that's good. I want to end with um, a question that uh, I do think is related to the book, absolutely, but also is m maybe most specific to some pre a preaching and teaching question a little bit. I'm, so sure. I'm asking this selfishly as a preacher. <laughs> but one of the many things I really did appreciate about your approach in this book is the way that you labored to not only explain what these beatitudes mean, but also how to go about cultivating them in our lives. And so I really read this book as in, th th there's some very intensely practical aspects to every single one of these chapters. And I really, really appreciate it with that. But I've noticed that some people really struggle with incorporating practical application into preaching and teaching. And so I was wondering if you ever get pushback on that. How do you think about, you know, 
writing application into not just into a book, but into your preaching. Do you know, you know what I, like I've had some, some people say that in preaching application that somehow you're not exalting Christ or you're, you know, you're putting all the emphasis on people. And so is there a balance to that in the way that you think about that? Or I just noticed in the book that you were really intentional about sort of the latter half of each chapter was really about cultivating these things practically. And I found that super helpful. And so I was just wondering as a preacher and a teacher, how you think about application in preaching and teaching. Well, Ryan, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, the Puritan tradition that uh, I found uh, a great deal of help from, Mm -hmm. um, they set out a point of doctrine and the rest of the sermon was application. And I think it's a good rule of thumb that um, half uh, of what um, uh, we're communicating uh, should be unfolding uh, truth and the other half should be applying truth. Mm -hmm. In this particular series, um, you know, you look back at decisions that prove to be providential. Mm -hmm. But I remember um, uh, thinking, now, as I approach the Beatitudes, do I do this in eight weeks or am I going to do this in 16 weeks? Mm -hmm. And the more I looked at it, the more I came to the conclusion that um, there was much to be said on each of these and much by way of application. And so what I did was I did two messages on each Beatitude. Mm. One was, what does it mean? And the other is, how are we going to put this into practice? That's great. And um, so people followed uh, with that. And I think as long as the two are held together, that's the important thing. I think if people feel that there is uh, simply exhortation um, that's apart from uh, the uh, truth of Scripture being opened up, then they can quickly feel like they're being beaten up to uh, have a dozen to-do items to be added to their list. And that quickly becomes tiresome. But if um, application is really arising out of seeing the good of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. and it really is earthed into life, then then I think that's at the heart of biblical preaching, you know, we're committed to expository preaching, Mm -hmm. and that means it must be expository. It also must be preaching, and preaching in its nature is calling people to something and exhorting people in the light of something. And so, I really appreciate your question because I think you're going after something that's very important. Well, that was a phenomenal answer to that as well that I'm probably just going to cut a snippet of. And the next time I get an email about something, I'm just going to be like, here's what Pastor Colin says, and he says it better than me. So I very much appreciate your time and uh, this conversation and the book and your ministry. Uh, You're a great blessing to many. And so I just want to close by thanking you uh, for your time today. All right. Thank you. And I appreciate your ministry. appreciate the podcast. So glad that God is using it and blessing it. And God bless you and all who listen to our little conversation today. My thanks to Colin Smith for the great conversation. There was a lot of wisdom in that. Scott, what are a couple of things that jumped out to you? Yeah, I think one of the first things you guys talked about was ministry longevity. And obviously, he has a, he has a great track record of that. And he, yeah. he talked about two things that were essential. First is nourishing your soul. Yeah. Uh, and then the second is knowing that you just have to make certain relationships work. Yeah. Um, you know, he talks about uh, his spouse, his wife, and... Um, I thought it's great. You know, I know we're as a uh, staff going through uh, Paul Tripp's book, yeah, Dangerous, Dangerous Calling. Calling. Yeah, yeah. It's a great and book. he really hammers home on on. Uh, just how important it is to nourish your soul yeah. and to um, to let what you're doing be be uh, fueled out of your 
um, vertical relationship with the Lord. Mm-hmm. Let the horizontal relationships yeah. and the horizontal things be mm-hmm. fueled out of yeah. that. And so, yeah, I, I think that that's super good. And I'm, good. I remember, I mean, I think anyone I've ever heard talk about this subject always talks about the importance of nourishing your soul. Yeah. And I remember, I don't know, probably the first, most of the time that I was at redemption thinking about, you know, I would hear that all the time be like, what are, what are guys doing that they're not taking time to do that? Yeah. And, uh, and I think that the truth was I was in a season of life that, that truthfully, I just like, I wasn't like swamped, you know, I didn't have a ton of, um, competing things pulling on me all of the time in the way that, you know, the last year and a half has been a lot busier for Mm -hmm. me. And I have noticed that if I'm not, um, really intentional about prioritizing the nourishment of my own soul, like for sure, nobody else is going to do that for you. Right. And, um, and there are, if you don't like carve out that time, something else is going to automatically fill it. And so I've definitely seen the way that if I have, even a few days where I'm not mindful of that, that yeah. takes a toll really quick. I thought too, you know, <clears throat> I know we both uh, enjoy learning about like health and fitness uh-huh. and, and um, in what I've read and what I've listened to in regards to nutrition, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're, they're learning more and more that each person is unique. And so some people like for instance, can process carbohydrates, yeah. like no problem. Yeah. And so these are the people that we all kind of hate who mm-hmm. can, yeah. you know. You're the worst. Yeah, eat whatever you want, yeah. eat all the bread and pasta yeah. that you want and it doesn't really affect you. And then yeah. there's some who, like if you're near that stuff, mm-hmm. you gain like five pounds. Yeah, I smell bread and I'm like, well, that's like two hours on the treadmill. Exactly, yeah. Um, and so the point of that is that nourishment, mm-hmm. um, there are some things that remain the same. Yeah. We all need to eat vegetables. Right. We all need to get v- certain vitamins and, and minerals and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But... Um, but some of the other parts of, of what a nourishing diet might look mm-hmm. like uh, differs for people. Yeah. And so I think that's true as well when it comes to nourishing our souls. There's yeah. a few things we all... Yeah. You we need, need to be God's in the Word. You need yeah. to pray. You need to be in prayer. Yeah. Um, but there, then there's, a, there's a, a, another part of nourishing your soul that is really about figuring out what does that mean for you? And yeah. What does that look like and how do you do that? Yeah. And I know that's been for me, point. I think the best... Um, practice is really figuring out. So what is that for yeah. me? Yeah. And that's just different for everybody. Yeah. The things that he said about, uh, I know you take great notes on this, but the stuff that he talked about with, um, not just longevity, but also surviving ministry for the long haul yeah. and, opposition and opposition and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like w- what did you think about that? It was great. He had those, so he had those three things. Don't defend yourself. Right. Um, speak, always speak well of others and then allow no root of bitterness. Yeah. That's so important. It is. And I think I heard those and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, that's great. And I think doing that is probably so, so hard. You know, he talked about this year, 18 months. Yeah. It was really hard for them. And, uh, I got to imagine there were, there were moments where, uh, not defending yourself and speaking well of others was just really hard. Um, but at the same time, I think he has a track record of showing that. And when you do those things, God honors it and you yeah. survive that opposition. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, bitterness is too, that, that last point of, so it's one thing to um, keep your, those, all three of those things work together. Yeah, It's one thing to, you could not defend yourself and you could publicly speak very positive about people and inside you could just have this poison mm. root of bitterness that destroys you. 
And I think all three of those are really important. Uh, bitter, I, I, people that, that hang on to things and are bitter people, yeah. I, I feel that the, not feel, I think, I've seen the older that they get, you can see it. Yeah. on a person. And, uh, yeah, that's a big thing for me. I just don't, I don't want to be like a bitter burnt out. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah. I think to the, the, you guys, I think close talking about this or towards the end, but, um, just cause his book, you're talking about how it, it does a great job of unpacking, um, the truth, but then also applying it. And yeah. so you, you were asking him about preachers. Yeah. Um, cause there is kind of a debate around, you know, do we should just, there be application? How yeah. much should there be? All that stuff. Yeah, and so he had this great line where he said, "A uh, good rule of thumb for preaching is that half is unfolding the truth and half should be applying the truth." Yeah, and I just think that's such a great balance to hold. Yeah, and he's and we need both. Yeah, I mean, if you just unfold the truth, yeah, then you get a lot of you know fathead Christians who yeah. know a ton, mm-hmm. um, but it Peers, hasn't, but not doers. Yeah. It hasn't yeah. seeped into, into the heart and yeah. into the, into your life. And, and if you get all application, then you don't have a foundation to stand yeah. on. Uh, and so that's I not like, that and good. I think it's always important. Like that's not like a new thing. Application's not this new, right? I mean, if you read, I don't read it. Uh, I, I'm not, I mean, some people are like, all they read is Puritans. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very thankful for the Puritans and I've read my share for sure. But one of the things I've noticed about a lot of Puritan work is that there is um, a very thorough explanation of a text yeah. and then an unbelievable amount of application. Yeah. Taking the principle from a text and then running it through all of these various, I mean, so much more than what even m- most of us do today. Yeah. So it's not a new thing, and I do think that it's it's really important. And and I, I think that I think that maybe what motivates some to have sort of a backlash against it is when it's it's all um, here's a bunch of stuff you need to go do. Sure. Like when we when we preach in like self help talks and we footnote with scripture. Yeah. Nobody would say that's a good thing to do. Yeah. Um, but I think being able to discern is that really what's happening, or is there just faithful explanation and faithful application that's taking place. So yeah. I really agreed with him on that. And I thought his, his, uh, his answer to that was, uh, helpful. Yep. Yeah. No, overall, I thought it was a great episode. Um, and, uh, yeah, I know, I know folks, you know, who, who currently are going to the orchard and, mm-hmm. um, just speak so highly of him. And, yeah. uh, and so thank you. Cause of the him. accent. Yeah. Big part of it. Yeah. I mean, Big let's be honest, it. at least 75%. <laughs> Of what was so good about this episode was his accent. Oh, that is not accurate. <laughs> <laughs> but if I, but it helped. But if it was with a Chicago accent, people probably would have been less engaged. That's true. Let's say it. That's we'll say very it like true. That. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening to this episode. Uh, as always, you can connect with us uh, on social media at Ryan Hughley and at Scott Holdhouse on all the social medias except Snapchat. I'm not on Snapchat. I'm not either. I just can't figure it out. I've joined and quit Snapchat at minimum of four times although i will say snapchat has these things the a filter is no i don't think it's filters that's what you put on a picture the things that like you look at it and you're a kitty cat you know what instagram has now oh my gosh becky and i had about two hours of fun with those just like (laughs) putting ridiculous ones on sending them back and forth yeah no we were sending them to a friend of hers and uh uh I thought it was like the I will say thing. now that Instagram is in, I don't know why we're, we could have just hit stop and then talked yeah, about this, yeah. but it's I never stuff. could get my head around what, like what people like about Snapchat yeah. and then Instagram stories introduced some of those things. And then I see, so I feel like I understand Snapchat a little bit better now. Yeah. 
but I feel I like it's don't. like I, I it's this moment where I feel like the kids love Snapchat. Yeah, and I'm like, uh, in, uh, I I don't understand yeah. it. I I'm, I'm sure it. it's the first step toward me being like an angry old man yelling at kids to get off my lawn. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what happens when you don't join the new thing. But yep. I just don't care. I'm ready to start yelling at some kids. Yeah, that's the beginning of it. On that note, we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>